I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. People don't like it when inflation rises, and they really don't like it when inflation rises to its highest rate in decades. In June 2022, inflation reached 9.1%, the highest rates since 1981. In a recent Econofact Chats episode, I spoke with Karen Dynan, former chief economist at the U.S. Treasury, about the sources for the current high rates of inflation, the policies that are being put in place to bring it down, and the prospects for its decline. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking with Dan Sickle of Wellesley College about how to understand the effects of inflation, what it captures about the reduction in purchasing power, and what it misses. Before joining Wellesley in 2012, Dan worked for more than 20 years at the Federal Reserve Board. Even more relevant for today's discussion, Dan recently served as chair of a National Academy of Sciences panel that wrote a report on modernizing the Consumer Price Index. This is not Dan's first time as a guest on Econofact Chats. In fact, he was our inaugural guest when we launched this podcast in the summer of 2020. Dan, thanks for joining me once again on our podcast. It's nice to be back. Dan, let's start out with some basics about the recent inflation numbers, using them to illustrate some other important points. First, what does that most recent statistic, 9.1% inflation, represent? So the CPI inflation number compares the price of a basket of goods purchased by an average or typical household today to the price of the same baskets of goods from a year ago. So I'm trying to get broad measure of how much overall prices have changed. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. First, what does the acronym CPI mean and what does it reflect? So the uh, CPI stands for, it's the acronym for Consumer Price Index. And as I mentioned, it's trying to capture changes in prices of a basket of, of, of goods that households buy. And that basket is chosen to represent what a typical household living in an urban area purchases uh, and how much it costs, uh, how much it costs to do that. And then again, tracking the changes over time. One thing that I find myself explaining to people is the difference between high prices and high inflation. Yeah, that's a a really important distinction. And I also find myself explaining that uh, often. So prices, of course, are the level of prices, like a gallon of gasoline is $5 a gallon. Uh, Inflation is how much that price is changing over time. So we can have really high prices and low inflation, or we can have really low prices and high inflation, just depending on what's happening in the uh, environment. Dan, the CPI isn't the only price index. To use another acronym, there's something called the PCE. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So the PCE price index, where PCE stands for personal consumption expenditures, um, is and actually that's the price index that the Federal Reserve follows more closely. I think the CPI gets more attention in the national media, 
uh, though the Fed actually looks at the other one. So without getting too much into the weeds, um, these measures use different formulas for combining prices of individual items. And the PCE index covers everything households consume rather than just what they buy. So for example, health insurance provided by an employer is included in PCE because households are consuming that, but it's not in the CPI because households aren't directly paying for it. Another important distinction, Dan, is what's called headline inflation and core inflation. And these can be quite different from each other. In fact, that's what we're seeing now, right? Yeah. Um, headline, it is an important distinction. Uh, the headline inflation, as the term gets called, is the inflation rate for all goods and services or changes in the prices of all goods and services. And what gets called core inflation strips out prices of food and energy. And that's done because those prices tend to be quite volatile. Um, that's especially true now, given what's happening in Ukraine and all of the uh, supply chain disruptions that have led to some very big increases in prices of oil and uh, certain foods. So, for example, in the latest CPI report, headline inflation, as you mentioned, was 9.1%. Core inflation was 5.9% because, of course, there were very big increases in some of the food categories and also in the uh, energy categories. So given this difference in the volatility in food and energy prices, economists and policymakers often look at core inflation to get an idea of the underlying trend. But th that said, the headline index is super important because people buy plenty of food and energy and they care a lot about the prices of those items. Yeah, I was looking at the data when it came out. And as you mentioned, the CPI inflation was 9.1%, but part of the components were really striking. The food at home index rose by more, 12.2%. And the energy price index rose by 41.6% over the last 12 months. So that's really dragging up the overall CPI and it's having a big effect. But as you mentioned, the core inflation rate is a lot lower. And when we think about policy efforts to fight inflation, is there more scope for bringing down core inflation rather than headline inflation? So in a way, in a way, yes. Um, the main policy tool used for bringing down inflation is the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to cool demand in the economy. And that, of course, means that those higher interest rates will have a bigger bite on interest-sensitive spending, which tends to be for bigger items like houses, cars, and other, uh, other big-ticket items. Uh, as compared to higher interest rates having a big effect on food or energy prices, since, as we're seeing now, uh, those prices can be heavily influenced by a host of other factors besides just overall level of demand in the economy. Um, that said, of course, higher interest rates around the world tend to slow global demand. Slower global demand, all else equal, would be expected to lead to a decline in energy prices. So in the main, these tools for reducing inflation likely affect core uh, inflation uh, first and foremost, but they will have effects on on uh, energy and some of the other items in headline inflation measures. And I think it's worthwhile mentioning that inflation is not just a problem in the United States, but in many other countries as well. And those countries, uh, central banks are also raising their interest rates. So we might see a slowdown in growth and perhaps this would feed through to energy and food prices as well. Yeah, I think that would be a good expectation because, as you said, 
uh, central banks all around the world are in a pattern of raising interest rates uh, rather aggressively right now. Dan, in the introduction, I mentioned that inflation is really unpopular. And in the conversation that I had with Karen Dynan about a month ago, she alluded to one reason for this, that people's wages and salaries typically don't keep up with inflation over a few months or even a year, but eventually they do so over a longer horizon. But there are other issues as well, ones that arise when we think about how inflation affects different people. So, for example, I just don't drive that much. I live only three miles from my office, so the big jump in gas prices doesn't affect me as much as someone who, say, has to spend an hour driving to work each day. Yeah, so that's a really important point. Uh, the, the differences in what people buy uh, can absolutely affect um, their inflation experience. As we were talking about before, you know, the CPI is calculated to represent the average household, but really uh, most households are very different than average in terms of the mix of things that they buy, what's in their household budgets. So for the most part, that wasn't such a big deal in recent decades um, because prices of many items kind of rose and fell together. But more recently, with the surge that you uh, mentioned in food and energy prices and also um, rents uh, increasing more rapidly, these differences in uh, budget shares can make a really big difference in people's inflation experience. And I think it often uh, leads people to think there's something wrong with the consumer price index. Not the case that there's something wrong with the index. It's just the index is measuring the average experience. And most people's experience is different than the average. Well, I like to think that I'm not average, and I guess that's right. Well, um, we're all above average, right? <laughs> if we lived in Lake Wobegon, but Absolutely. that's an illusion that some of our younger listeners might not get. Correct. Um, so, Dan, more broadly, high food and fuel prices hit poorer families harder than those who are better off because poorer families spend a higher proportion of their income on groceries, heating, gas, and so on. Yeah. And that point is really missed by the overall um, aggregate CPI inflation numbers, because of course, again, it's capturing the average rather than the experience of these different groups. Um, turns out that one of the recommendations uh, to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in that National Academies report that uh, you mentioned at the, at the top um, was for the Bureau of Labor Statistics to develop uh, specific measures of inflation that reflect the actual inflation experience of people at different levels of income. Um, so, for example, just as you were suggesting, food and rents make up a bigger share of spending for lower income households than they do for higher income households. Uh, so one would want to take account of that in thinking about uh, inflation experiences for people who are in different places in the income distribution. Another interesting point, in addition to differences in what people buy, so think of that as what people are putting in, if you're thinking of a grocery store, what are people putting into their grocery carts? Uh, people also shop at different stores. So think of that as like Kroger versus Publix. And it turns out that there are uh, differences too in how fast prices change for uh, similar items at different stores. So a complete look at uh, what is the inflation experience of lower income versus higher income households would have to look would have to capture both these differences in what people buy and these differences in where people buy the items that they're buying. Dan, there already are statistics on incomes by different income levels, but I guess those are going to be deflated or adjusted for inflation right now with a common CPI. So 
in a way, those are not accurately measuring what economists call the real effect, that is the inflation-adjusted effect of changes in income are for these different groups. So I guess that recommendation would be very useful, not just for inflation, but understanding incomes across different groups as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's a key reason why these uh, CPI numbers by income group would be so, would be so valuable. Uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis over in the Department of Commerce has developed uh, measures of personal income by uh, income decile. But again, all, if all they have is an aggregate price index to convert those nominal measures to reals, they can only use the common uh, price index. But if uh, price indexes became available, inflation measures became available by income group, they could get much more accurate measures of changes in real incomes and real incomes per person or per household uh, for people situated in different places on the income distribution. There's been a lot of talk recently of people calling what's happening skimpflation. That is that maybe the price of something is the same, but for example, candy bars are getting smaller or fewer items are put into a package. Do price statistics account for this? Yeah, so the folks at the Bureau of Labor Statistics who put the CPI together uh, do a good job of tracking changes like the shrinking size of candy bars. Um, You know, they'll price candy by the ounce rather than by the bar so that if a bar gets smaller, fewer ounces in a package, they're going to pick that up. Um, I also noticed on a a recent uh, flight that the size of onboard snacks is shrinking um, with many, many fewer uh, chips in a bag of in a bag of uh, chips. Um, though, of course, getting away from food items for more complicated uh, products, like say an iPhone, where there also are changes over time, maybe not related to skimflation, but also changes in the actual product over time. Uh, that's a harder thing to track, uh, though the the uh, analysts at BLS. Uh, work pretty hard to try to do that as best they can. So given what people say about airplane food, it's not necessarily the case that you're worse off if there's less food on a flight, I suppose, or Fair if the point. portions are smaller. Fair point. Dan, you're talking about the quality of goods in a way, and inflation measures the erosion of purchasing ability, the rising costs of a basket of goods. But things in the basket change over time. For example, my current car has a heated seat, a backup camera, and a good stereo system, and is a lot safer than a comparably priced car from 20 years ago. And it's easy to find other examples of goods that are much better now or weren't even imagined 20 or 30 years ago. Cell phones, powerful laptops, better quality medicines come to mind, as well as a much bigger range of goods that were available before better shipping and globalization. How does this affect our understanding of purchasing power and the effects of inflation on eroding purchasing power over longer periods of time? So that relates back to the comment I made a minute ago about uh, iPhones and changes in iPhones or other uh, complex uh, products. Um, So, right, uh, lots of products, not just iPhones. Many, many products have undergone uh, pretty dramatic changes over time. Uh, Economists would broadly refer to that either as quality change for existing items or uh, the introduction of new goods for completely new items. And when we measure inflation, what we, what we want um, is a measure that provides apples to apples comparison. So we're comparing the same thing over time, which gets hard when the products themselves are changing. And as you said, it wouldn't really make sense to directly compare the price 
of your car today to the price of the car you were driving 20 years ago, or to be even more dramatic to the price of a Model T uh, in the year they were introduced in uh, 1908. So given these differences, analysts at BLS, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, use a set of statistical techniques to try to value, to estimate the value of these improvements over time and to adjust prices of today's car uh, so that they can get apples to apples comparison of price of today's car versus the price of a car a year ago. Um, it's not perfect. It gets pretty complicated. It gets pretty deep in the weeds. Uh, but in many cases, these adjustments are going to be first order correct. And over shorter periods of time, I guess it's not as big an issue. For example, looking at the 9.1% inflation today, it's not like there's been this huge introduction of goods that we have to worry about quality changes or new goods just over the course of the last year, correct? Yeah, that's right. If we were to think about these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, the effects of introduction of new and improved products, when inflation rates were really low, around you know one or two percent, then these differences might be a bigger fraction of the overall bigger share of the overall inflation rate. But with inflation at nine percent, these kinds of things are going to be dwarfed by the overall inflation rate. And and you know the the bottom line message from the CPI report yesterday and recent inflation prints is inflation's really high and a lot higher than it was a year than than it, than it had been. What about the fact that especially during the pandemic, some goods just weren't available. There may have been a price label, but it was on an empty shelf. So you can think of that price as effectively, I guess, infinity. Inflation statistics would not capture this feature of a loss of purchasing ability, would it? No, they wouldn't. And and that's in a time like the pandemic, when there were so-called stockouts of a lot of items, um, that certainly affected people's uh, shopping experience. Um, but the way the consumer price index uh, is set up, the way it's constructed, it's not going to capture uh, those effects. Um, Recently, some academics have uh, looked at the issue to try to think through the effects of stockouts on kind of household well-being, uh, but it is not something that's going to get captured in the, in the official consumer price index numbers. So inflation today is risen to the point where it's one of the major concerns for policymakers, but also politicians, because rightly or wrongly, they get blamed for inflation. And I'd like to thank you, Dan, for helping to explain how inflation is measured and how we can best understand it and what both the measurements show and what they fail to show. So once again, thank you for joining me a second time on Account of Fact Chats. Very happy to be with you. It was a lot of fun doing this. This has been Account of Fact Chats. To learn more about Account of Fact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.